0: It really sheds quite an interesting light on his, really his whole personality, adds more nuance and depth, and gives kind of a more well-rounded picture.
1: Welcome to All About Jack. I'm your host, William O'Flaherty, author of The Misquotable C.S. Lewis. All About Jack is a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com. If you listen regularly, then you know I like to mix things up from time to time with special episodes, and that's the case today. While I'm doing my typical author interview, the first difference is the focus. It is on a friend of Lewis you've probably heard of. He goes by the last name of Tolkien. The other variation is I have a co-host today. Well, let me uh, start off with telling you the title of the book. It's Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. The author is Dr. Holly Ordway, who is no stranger to All About Jack. Less familiar is my co-host, Dr. Lisa Kutris, who is also a Tolkien scholar. Later, she'll tell about herself and also about a book she wrote on this obscure friend of C.S. Lewis. Well, first, uh, let's welcome back to All About Jack, Holly.
0: Well, thank you for having me on again. Always a pleasure.
1: And then uh, thanks to Lisa for helping me out today.
0: Yeah,
2: thanks so much for having me. This is going to be great.
1: I certainly hope so. Well, it's uh, good to have the both of you. So, I'll let you kick things off, Lisa.
2: Yeah, Holly, it's so wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to you about your book. Why don't you begin by telling us concisely uh, what your book is about
0: and uh, why it matters? Well, I am pleased with the title because it it really, as they say in Britain, does what it says in Latin Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. So, my argument in the book is that we have so often thought of Tolkien as reading only literature of the Middle Ages um, and being only influenced by that. And of course, medieval literature was hugely important for Tolkien. It was extremely important for, obviously, his professional work and also as a source of inspiration for him. But it wasn't the only thing that he read. And what I've done in Tolkien's modern reading is to do a deep dive into tracking down every bit of information I could about what Tolkien had read of modern literature, and then thinking about what does that tell us about its influences on his Middle-earth writings, and indeed about um, his creative imagination in general. And what I ended up discovering is was quite to my surprise that Tolkien read a lot of modern literature, and he engaged with it very deeply and thoughtfully, and it really sheds quite an interesting light on his really his whole personality adds more nuance and depth and gives kind of a more well-rounded picture. You know, it's one more facet in this, this diamond that is, that is Tolkien.
1: Well, now Holly, as you were just saying here, uh, there's the mistaken notion that Tolkien has read very little. In fact, from your material that I looked over, uh, uh, you were noting that the basic misconception is that he's not read much beyond the writings of Chaucer. What's the reason for this misconception?
0: This misconception has a couple of root causes, and one of them is his authorized biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, who wrote in the biography that Tolkien read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. Boom. He says that, you know, he, that he just was not interested, knew very little of it, took no interest in it, and very naturally... People have taken that to be accurate. Um, and we can talk more about you know the issues with Carpenter's biography later, but the, the fundamental point is that Carpenter is not correct in that statement, but it put a lot of people off the track. And there are other influences too, kind of distorting the picture, because even while Tolkien was alive, people have somehow got it in their heads. That because he wrote these fantasy stories, that therefore he must have been stuck in the past. And there's one interview, for instance, that I that I looked at where the interviewer is basically trying to get Tolkien to say that he doesn't care about you know, modern modern day culture, modern day news at all. He's surprised that Tolkien mentions a newspaper. And Tolkien comes back and says, Well, yes. In fact, I read three newspapers, he tells this interviewer. And he adds that he's very interested in what goes on in the world, both locally and nationally and internationally. And that was Tolkien pushing back against an assumption that even a present day for him, interviewer was, was, was making. So we have just sort of these assumptions that hover around Tolkien that of course he must've been stuck in the past and the real Tolkien can kind of get hidden. And if we add to the fact that he himself could be a bit, Oh, kind of, hyperbolic in some ways and he could be kind of contrarian a very interesting personality so it's it's quite a complex situation um and we've got all these different factors but most notably carpenter's biography kind of putting us all off of the trail so to speak
2: yeah and speaking as a tolkien scholar myself it's very easy to see something like uh carpenter's book as gospel because it's one of the first out there, and you take it as a you know primary source, and uh, you base things off of it. But actually it is uh, very good that it's being critiqued because there are a few things that don't seem quite right with who he is. And Tolkien was a very nuanced person. and it's very hard for most people, I would say, to grasp the nuance. And even, even your book is very nuanced, and you, know, you were saying that people have pushed back and said you know, they, they don't like certain, you know, the, the, the critique of Carpenter, but your critique is so nuanced. You're saying that he has brought uh, you know, great you know, knowledge based on the biography, but at the same time, he wasn't all right with everything. And so you're, bringing, you're shedding some light on where he uh, got things wrong, but you're not saying he's all wrong, but it's hard to grasp the nuance. So I just find that very interesting.
0: Yeah. And Carpenter is just such a fascinating figure because we, I mean, I know that I coming into looking at um, Tolkien scholarship, looking at the biography, of course, I assumed that it was a you know reliable, solid, trustworthy source because he's the authorized biographer. And it wasn't until I discovered how he became the authorized biographer that I really started saying, wait a second, because Carpenter himself was, you would expect that he had a you know a good resume, so to speak, that he had good credentials to be chosen as the authorized biographer. But in fact, I learned that he was he was a young man. He had no published books to his name. He was working for um BBC Radio Oxford, um, had a brief kind of knowledge of Tolkien, and he was originally hired to help work, to help write the captions for the illustrated photo album that became the Tolkien Family Album. And Rayner Unwin, um, the publisher, even wrote that he didn't think it, it required any particular credentials or qualifications to do that little job. And then, Unwin adds, Carpenter dug himself in and kind of enmeshed himself in the materials and ends up getting picked as the biographer And even more strikingly, I was looking at various interviews with Carpenter himself. And in one interview, someone asked him, well, how how did you get chosen to be the authorized biographer? And Carpenter himself says, oh, well, I wasn't really chosen. I rather forced myself on the Tolkien family. He went around, he said, to the different members of the family and said, well, at least I know Oxford a little bit. You better pick me or somebody worse might come along. Oh, my word. You know, that's Carp- that's Carpenter's own words, saying how he kind of wangled himself into this situation with no experience whatsoever and not even a particularly favorable view of Tolkien, as they discovered. Mm-hmm. So it's a very curious sort of historical set of events. And, you know, at the time, they wanted to get a biography done to ensure that, well, that something worse wouldn't come along. And it evidently seemed an adequate choice at the time. And yet it has had a really big knock-on effect on our views of Tolkien. And all the more, because although Carpenter had access to the unpublished papers in a way that nobody has hitherto, he doesn't give any citations in the biography. There are no footnotes. There's no references. We've got to trust him. And he's not as reliable as we might wish him to be. Uh, In chapter one, uh, you note Lewis's comment
2: uh, when he says, as for anyone influencing Tolkien, you might as well try to influence a Bandersnatch. Now elaborate a bit on Tolkien and Lewis's literary relationship and how Tolkien might have been or not been influenced
0: by Lewis or others. Well, that's another, you know, one of the big sort of mythos figures of, of Tolkien's, um our perception of Tolkien that, that he was totally uninfluencible. It's, it, you know, we might say that Lewis's remark about the Bandersnatch kind of went viral and here I owe a great debt to Diana Glyer's pioneering work on the Inklings in her book, The Company They Keep, because she busts that myth wide open and she shows that far from being uninfluenciable, un- um, Tolkien actually was influenced by the Inklings in a, in a variety of ways. Um, now, that whole idea of, you know, nobody can influence Tolkien, you know, well, first of all, Lewis himself later in that particular accounts, that passage that this comes from, admits that he's too close to the situation. He might not really be able to tell what's really going on. And he also adds that, you know, oh, you can't influence Tolkien, you know, you critique his work. And the only thing he does is he starts it over again, um, or he does nothing. You know, we can only influence him by sheer encouragements. But within that, there's quite a lot going on because first of all, to scrap something and start over again is surely a pretty profound form of influence and encouragement itself is a form of influence. So we already see that the personal influence of the inklings themselves did, did have some effect, but even if we set that aside, the question is, you know, not quite the same. Did, was there personal effect on, on Tolkien's writing versus did he have any influence from the things that he read? And that's a different question that Lewis's comment doesn't really even speak to to begin with. So I think we've we've kind of let that very catchy comment um kind of carry more weight than it than it really needs to. How do you define
2: influence, right? I mean if someone says, oh I gave Tolkien an idea and he went with my idea, that's one idea of influence. Another kind is we were friends and my sheer presence made a difference in how he wrote. So yes, I mean, for certain he was influenced by his friends but
0: how you define that influence is particular. Yeah. it's a big question. And really it's one of the things I had to set out to do, like, well, what am I even talking about in terms of influence? And I had to set aside exactly that first category, the personal influence, because that's, that's a really rich and interesting category. And, you know, Diana Glyer's worked extensively with that. and I'm sure there's more that could be done even, but what I said, okay, not, I'm not going to look at personal influence. I'm going to look only at the influence of things that you read And then within that to really start thinking about, well, what do we mean by influence? And so I borrowed actually C.S. Lewis's distinction between sources and influences and talk about them both. And Lewis um, says, he he describes a source as something that gives us something to think about, like an idea, an image, a character, a scene, and an influence guides us in how we engage with it. So, you know, that kind of helps us see already there's some different ways that a book can have an influence. It can be a source of an image. And we have a number of these that Tolkien himself identifies. Like he um, he calls the book, The Marvelous Land of Snurgs an unconscious source book for the hobbits. An unconscious source book for the hobbits is Tolkien's own phrase. And then we have the influences on things like style or approach. And here we have, you um, uh tolkien mentioning william morris's mixed prose and verse as something that he's modeling um fall gondolin after So we have a stylistic influence morris does this thing tolkien wants to try it out and then as i got further into it i realized that there was also another kind of influence that i wanted to talk about and that's what i call influence by opposition where tolkien sees something And he doesn't care for it. He thinks it can be done better. He's a perfectionist. Or he thinks, okay, I want to do totally opposite of this. And that's a very significant form of influence. And in fact, Tolkien himself, again, names that because he calls out George MacDonald and says that it's very often the case that an author like George MacDonald, as he names specifically, causes him to kind of be influenced a certain way by as being kind of an irritant. Um, So again, we have Tolkien himself who names an example of influence by opposition in, in George MacDonald. And I think we see quite a lot of that where Tolkien reads, he engages with something and he says, ah, you know, I can, I can do it better. I can do it differently. And of course, you know, we have to be careful because this is, you know, influence by opposition is looking at what, he does differently what, what isn't there. But I think if we're really careful and precise and, and how we look at things, it's a fair, it's a fair thing to do.
2: And I think you were very uh, particular and very careful in, in the sources that you chose to examine that these were things that either he mentioned overtly uh, or he owned, or it was very reasonable that he had contact with it. So I do like how you narrowed your
0: focus uh, to to things that were provable to some extent. Yeah, that was something that I took quite great pains to do. That every author um, and title that I mentioned in the book is one that we have direct evidence that Tolkien knew. He he mentions the book in a letter, an interview, his drafts of his writing, his published writing. Um, he you know he owned the book, he taught the book. Um, Or he has a friend or family member who mentions that Tolkien knew it. So in every case, every single author that I mention and every single title I specifically mention is one where we have a direct evidence that Tolkien knew it. And this is important because there's so many things that we could say that he probably knew, you know, or that the other inklings knew or that surely he must have known. And these can be really tempting, like, it was so frustrating, in a way, because he must surely have known the writings of John Henry Cardinal Newman, you know, as a, as a Catholic, as someone who, you know, spent a lot of his childhood in Newman's oratory in Birmingham, you know, his, his um, guardian, Father Francis, had even been um, Newman's personal secretary towards the end of Newman's life. Surely he must have read something of Newman's. But... We don't have any direct evidence as of yet of what he had read. Um, I was actually able to make a discovery following up um, on something. Douglas Anderson had discovered a letter that Tolkien had signed as a, um, as a um, vice president of the Newman Association. Um, he had co-signed a letter protesting a religious freedom violation um, And that indication that he'd been involved with the Newman Association was intriguing. And I actually went up to Durham, England, and researched in the archives of the Newman Association there and found that not only had he signed that one letter, but he he was involved with the National Newman Association for a number of years, um, both on the national level and even in Oxford, um, with the Oxford Circle of the Newman Association. And this, to my knowledge, is, is new. No one has turned this up before. Um so we know he he cared about Newman and it was involved with the Newman association but as yet we don't have any evidence of the specific titles of Newman's works that he read and so therefore I resisted the temptation to speculate um and I don't go into that in Tolkien's modern reading because I kept it only to the certains and not to the probables however tempting they might be <laughs> Even then you got a lot of material. <laughs> so oh, yeah, definitely. To do. yeah. <laughs> well, that was the really surprising thing about it because I, when I started out, you know, which was 10 years ago, really, when I started this project, my first pass through, I was gratified that I had a couple dozen authors. I said, wow, this is good stuff. And then by the end of it, I have 148 authors and more than 200 titles in my appendix that lists all the ones that I that I turned up. I had no idea that I was going to turn up this much material. It, it was quite a surprise to me.
1: Now, one of the things you were noting was in terms of of uh distinctions in the uh second chapter you um call the scope of this study and you define the words modern and reading and you've touched on uh, some aspects of that but uh, it, it may seem unusual to have to define those words, modern in reading, uh, because they're uh, obvious, right? But uh, why do you go to such trouble to uh, do that?
0: Well, I suppose in part it's because after spending so many years um, sort of thinking along with Tolkien, um, his precision and, and attention to detail has rubbed off on me. Um, but uh, it's very important to, to really delineate the scope of, of the project. So I had to have a starting point. Where do I, where do I pick up my investigation? And so that's why I had to define modern. Um, and so I picked the year 1850 as my starting date. So he had read things before 1850 that were of great interest. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature between the end of the middle ages and 1850, um, but there's work for other scholars to do. Um, I had to pick a starting point at some point in 1850, you know, it's it's recognized as, you know, the end of the sort of romantic period with the death of William Wordsworth, really the beginning of the great era of the Victorian novelists. Industrialization was in full swing. The Catholic hierarchy had restored in England. So it was a useful date to uh, to have as my beginning point for the modern era, especially since are Tolkien, born in 1892, it would have still been modern for him. You know, time, you know, literarily the pace of publishing was a little bit slower in Tolkien's day than it is now so the books that were published since 1850 would still have been relatively modern you know new for for Tolkien so that was how i defined modern and then you know as we've just defined what i meant by reading what we can really know for sure that that he had looked at the
2: next couple of chapters you explore the impact of victorian and
0: post-victorian literature can you give us some of the highlights from that Oh, well, so many things I could talk about. So the first couple of chapters that I that I touch on, I'm really focusing in on children's literature. Um, and that is an extremely rich field because Tolkien um was a father and a grandfather. And so he I discovered that he kept abreast of children's literature both for his own family and for, you know, his his grandchildren. Um and then of course there was all the reading that he did when he was a boy, and he was interested in children's literature and modern fairy tale as an academic, you know, for his preparing for his lecture for uh, St. Andrew's, the Andrew Lang lecture. So some of the highlights that I found, um, for instance, was his engagement with the fairy tales of Andrew Lang, a very significant figure. Um, The Red Fairy book um, was one of the books that most impressed him. Um, and I had a, the tale of Sigurd adapted actually from William Morris's that uh, gave Tolkien just the, the master picture of a dragon that really stuck with him. And, um, you know, other sort of more moving on, we have Lewis Carroll, for instance. Um, and that's an author that I discovered that Tolkien really admired. When The Hobbit was compared to Alice in Wonderland, Tolkien thought that, as he put it, the compliment to The Hobbit was rather high. He felt that it was a flattering thing to compare The Hobbit to uh, Lewis Carroll's work. And uh, I turned up in my research, um, Tolkien made a whole bunch of notes where he he translated Lewis Carroll's poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter, into Elvish. Um, (laughs) And uh, he seemed to have had great fun with that. So he enjoyed Lewis Carroll. He used to go around the house uh, reciting the comic poems from some of Carroll's works. And here, I think, for instance, we can see some possible influence kind of by example because Carroll was a very successful children's author. Um, And he was a, he was also a Don, he was a lecturer in mathematics at Christchurch. And so he was able to offer Tolkien kind of an example of here is somebody who is a academic in the Oxford context, who also is a successful children's author and in this lighthearted comic vein of which we see more in the Hobbit than we do in the Lord of the Rings. So that's, that's one of those sort of more subtle influences. And then of course, one that I mentioned, um, before already briefly, you know, E.A. Wicksmith's The Marvelous Land of Snurgs*, where we have these characters called the Snurgs, who are extremely Hobbit-like, even down to the fact, I mean, they're child-sized. Um, they like to shoot with bows and arrows, um, They And they love parties and feasting. They're very, very hobbit-like. And in my photo gallery in the book, I've got an illustration from that book where you can see just how hobbit-like these snurgs really are. And of course, Tolkien admits it. He says that it was an unconscious source book for the hobbits. And also the British people. (laughs) A Swedish friend of
2: mine once said that she came to England and she realized the British are hobbits. They are
0: hobbits. (laughs) <laughs> well, Tolkien himself said that he he considered himself to be a hobbit in everything but size. Indeed.
1: <laughs> well, now let's uh, pause for a moment and, and have you, Holly, uh, share more about your background, even though you're not a stranger to all about Jack, but maybe there's some people who are just listening to the podcast here for the first time. So what's your uh, training and how did you become uh, interested in Tolkien?
0: Well, my uh, my background's in English literature, so I have a PhD in English literature um, and I've taught English for many years before switching over to teaching Christian apologetics um, and so I've I did actually my dissertation um, on modern fantasy and that was something that got me more into the academic research about what came before Tolkien um, and you know that was I mean, I've been working reading Tolkien for a long time since I was a girl um, and finished my dissertation um, and got my, my got my PhD. 20 years ago now, um, and that kind of laid the really groundwork for looking at authors like Lord Dunsany and William Morris and E.R. Edison, authors that were significant in the um, fantasy literature before Tolkien, and that helped make me start asking the questions of, well, you know, had, had Tolkien read any of these authors? What did he think about them? They were significant for the genre, but had he read them? And so that really helped to lead into um, this question of, okay, well, what actually had Tolkien read, and and where did The Lord of the Rings come from? Most
2: are aware that uh, Tolkien and Lewis were friends, and according to some reports, Lewis loved what Tolkien wrote. He loved Middle-earth, but maybe Tolkien didn't quite like what Lewis wrote, at least the Narnia books. How
0: accurate is that? Well, the way that you've presented that, that's very accurate, because because Tolkien didn't particularly enjoy the Narnia books. He found them outside the range of his imaginative sympathies. Um, he, He didn't care for them. That's a very accurate presentation. However, that's not how it is often portrayed in the media, especially when people pick it up with memes. You get this idea that Tolkien hated Narnia, that he loathed it, that he despised it, and unfortunately, this has gotten even picked up in biographies of the Inklings. And this this misconception we owe to Humphrey Carpenter, who grossly exaggerates some things that um, Tolkien had said to other friends. It turns out, when we trace it back, that Lewis had read the first couple chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Tolkien when they were just the first couple of chapters he hadn't written the whole book and he read those to Tolkien and Tolkien was not particularly impressed he didn't he didn't like them very much um and lewis reports that to his friend Roger Lancelin Green and kind of like oh Tolkien didn't like them kind of slightly matter of fact um obviously he's disappointed they he didn't like them but he's not devastated and he just reports it as like yeah Tolkien didn't didn't like them um, and again, we don't remember at this point, Tolkien has only read the first couple of chapters where he doesn't know where the story is going. And then we also have the report um, that Tolkien a little later said to Roger Lancelin Green, the same friend of Lewis's. Oh, I hear you've been reading those stories of Jack's. Well, you know, a love life of a fawn, nymphs in their ways. You know, this this just won't do. Um, and that is pretty much all that we have of Tolkien's initial reaction to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we later hear um, through some other reasonably reliable sources that he just didn't care for the Chronicles. He, you know, he wasn't enthused about them. He felt that they were a little bit too overtly Christian in their their presentation. He didn't like the way that Tolkien had mixed up the different um, mythological figures. You know, we get the White Witch and Father Christmas and all that. But none of this adds up to loathing or despising it. Um, All of that is blown up um, by, frankly, by Humphrey Carpenter, making it into a big to-do in the biography, and especially in his volume of The Inklings. And Carpenter even says that, you know, Tolkien hated them and that, that he never found it in his heart to revise his opinion of Narnia. And that's not accurate either, because there's a later letter that another scholar turned up, um, where Tolkien writes to his interlocutor that he's very happy that that person has discovered Narnia and he calls the books deservedly very popular and that's I think really important because just to say they're popular is a statement of fact at that point but Tolkien calls them deservedly popular and we know that his granddaughter Joanna um, was given these books to read she went when she went to visit her grandparents the Narnia Chronicles were on the shelves and, and she was given those books to read as, as a little girl. And Tolkien had very strong family connections and very strong family feelings. Like he would not have given his granddaughter some books to read that, that he thought were you know worthless rubbish. So he had, he had some objections to what Lewis was doing, but that whole idea of them being sort of at odds about it is really overblown. Sounds like it just wasn't his taste. Yeah, and you know, fair enough. Um, you're you're allowed to have different tastes, you know. And I'm sure Lewis was disappointed that Tolkien didn't fully, you know, engage with the enthusiasm for the Narnia books. But you know, that's people are allowed to have different tastes.
1: Right. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, Lewis. If uh, if people look into it, then maybe it's not as well known that. Lewis was definitely a very, very big fan of The Hobbit and The uh, Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, it is a shame in, in some sense in, in terms of contrast. It's uh, definitely he didn't uh, get a reciprocation uh, to, to that, but, uh, you know, that's, that's okay.
0: <laughs> and also we have to keep in mind that although Tolkien didn't reciprocate the enthusiasm for Narnia, he was a huge fan of um, the Cosmic Trilogy. So he loved Out of the Silent Planets, Um and he he went to you know great efforts to help get it published. He wrote Mm, like a glowing letter, his own publisher. Um so he really was backing Lewis um in Lewis's um cosmic trilogy. He loved Paralandra, didn't care for the way that he handled Mm -hmm. that hideous strength, but he's very, very favorable about um the first two volumes. And indeed, you know, in a photograph of his study um in 1966, we see that he's got all three volumes on his shelves. So he, he thought very well of that. Um, we know also that he he gave a volume of Lewis's um, poems as a gift to one of his friends. And I think that's significant as well. So he thought well enough of Lewis's poetry to gift it to someone. And so we see that, that Tolkien did support and encourage a lot of Lewis's writings. He just didn't happen to care for the Narnia books.
1: Well, we're going to get back into uh, your book here on uh, Tolkien in a, in a moment, uh, Holly. But uh, earlier, we mentioned that we'll have to give uh, Lisa an opportunity to share about uh, herself. So, uh, Lisa, share some about your background and your interest uh, in uh, Tolkien, and along with uh, your book, which is called uh, Tolkien's Theology of Beauty.
2: Yeah, my my background is primarily theology. Uh, my first degree was philosophy. Uh, so most of what I've focused on over the years is narrative theology and how it plays out in literature, particularly in Tolkien's work. Uh, so my, my doctorate work was in Tolkien's uh, theological aesthetics. How does his worldview, particularly his Catholic worldview, play out in his writing? And in order to extract his theology, I argue... Uh, you have to look from the perspective of beauty, which is a very Catholic perspective. Uh, And that's something that many from a Protestant background wouldn't necessarily trust because beauty is thought of as deceptive. But if you take uh, a perspective of God's glory as the starting point and the origin, and that all beauty must be married to truth and goodness then the picture of beauty that you get is all-encompassing and and integrated into all of creation. And so taking that perspective, you see how much of that is woven into Middle-earth and how his worldview is uh, illuminating, you know, illuminated all throughout his writing. And it is absolutely beautiful. And the more that you study it, the more you see it, in the Bible. I mean, obviously it's there. And so the more you study theological aesthetics, the more beautiful the Bible becomes. And so I think that is something that that study has actually given a great, given me a greater appreciation for. Uh, and so my thesis became uh, Tolkien's Theology of Beauty in book form. Um, and uh, yeah, so that is um, my, my pride and joy. And uh published by Palgrave MacMillan. And um, yeah, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for people to be able to uh, uh, check that out and consider uh, getting a copy.
0: Well, I already have a copy on my shelf, so I don't need that link, but I definitely would encourage other people to add that to their collections.
2: All right, well, Holly, um, obviously we can't discuss every chapter of your book, but give us an overview of the remaining content.
0: Well, that's, you know, that's, that's no light thing there. Um, well, I, I go through after the Victorians, I ever sort of roughly chronological order. Um, and, uh, so I will look at my own table of contents to remind myself, um, of, of what's in my own book. Um, so I've got, um, George McDonald has a chapter all to himself. Uh, I talk about, then I talk about adventure literature. Um, we get, look at at some of the books that were important to him in his boyhood um, and sort of the adventure novelists that he read later in life, like John Buchan was an important author for him that he read as an adult. And then I look um, at H. Ryder Haggard has a whole chapter. Um, He's the author of books like um, King Solomon's Minds and She which had some really interesting influences on Tolkien, especially the way that he um, uses things like maps and uh, metatextual artifacts like um, like we have the, the, uh, the book of Mazar Bull in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings. And I, I trace some intriguing connections um, with I think we can find with, uh, with Haggard. And I've got a chapter on William Morris, again, an extremely important figure. Tolkien. He read loads of Morris's books. He names Morris's um, books, The House of the Wolfings and The Roots of the Mountains, as significant influences on The Lord of the Rings. And what he meant by that reference is debated by critics. Um, And so that was a very interesting chapter to delve into and to kind of tease out The very complex ways in which Morris had an influence um, on Tolkien and the way that that uh, Tolkien changed his response to Morris over the years, because he read Morris as a young man and some of his first works like The Fall of Gondolin are totally in a Morrisian style, almost a pastiche, um, especially in the way that he uses archaic language and then we find that as he goes on he gets a more nuanced view and and responds differently and i think that was one of the neat things about studying his reading so carefully and looking at it in chronological context that you see the way that tolkien matured and grew as a writer you know he didn't hatch out of the egg you know instantly as he was, he grew, he changed over time, um, and became more skilled. And we see that especially in the way that he interacts with Morris. Um, so that's a, a significant author. Um, and, uh, another chapter that I'm, I had a lot of fun with really was the science fiction chapter. A lot of surprises there. You know, he read, he read Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. He, he approved of H.G. Wells's works, not of his philosophy, but he called him an old master of the genre. So lots of really interesting connections there. Um, I've got a chapter that I call Fine Fabling that I look at um, some of the more sort of mythopoeic authors um, and an author, indeed, that was very important to Tolkien, the Catholic poet Francis Thompson. Um, And then I have a chapter that I call Tolkien's Catholic Taste. Here comes everybody. And that's where I sort of bring in all sorts of other authors that that don't fit anywhere else. Um, Here comes everybody because Tolkien read loads of different authors. He read American realists like Sinclair Lewis. He read modernists like James Joyce. Um, He read all sorts of different authors. Very kind of startling, the breadth of the things that he read.
1: Yeah, very fascinating. Well, now, you made a passing reference to it earlier, but at the end of your book, you have an interesting appendix. And uh, about a third of the way into the book, there's something uh, special. Tell us about uh, each.
0: Well, the appendix, as I mentioned, is sort of a of a convenient guide in it it's a what i call a comprehensive list of tolkien's modern reading and i've included every author and title that i mention in the book Um, and i have a set of columns where i indicate what what is the basis for um our knowledge of it is it from his letters from his writings from interviews etc um and it kind of gives a snapshot at a view you can look through and see the whole picture and every one of those authors um has evidence for you know their placement in that in that chart, the evidence is in the book. Um, so there's it's a kind of a convenient way to get a kind of a big picture. You know, oh look, Bantrix Potter, Agatha Christie, Dylan Thomas, huh? Let me go find out where, how Tolkien read those. So that's the that's the kind of the the overview thing tucked at the end as the resource. And then the thing earlier on that you mentioned is something I'm extremely proud of, and it is the photo gallery. I have a. Full color photo gallery, and I find it just very exciting. Um, Word on Fire Academic is the publisher of this book, um, and they did, I think, a really beautiful job with it, including letting me have a full color photo gallery um, with all sorts of interesting things in it. Covers of the books, um, many of the books that I've mentioned. I've got um, forty different images, um, forty different figures in in the in the book as a whole. Uh, so visually it lets us kind of catch a glimpse um of what tolkien was reading and some of the some of the faces associated with that. Yeah and your book is still affordable which I can't say about my book. <laughs> well I'm very I'm very grateful that you know I'm so pleased this is the actually the premier title of the new line Word on a Fire Academic. It's a new academic line and they really got my vision about wanting to do top-notch scholarship that is also accessible to, you know, to readers who are not academics, uh, and that's what I've tried to do. Um, you know, I want this to be a book. It's obviously a book of scholarship. It's got a lot of footnotes, a lot of endnotes. Um, it's got a 14-page bibliography, um, but I also want only, to, only 14 pages. It's, it's you know, it's pretty tightly spaced. <laughs> it's like 10,000 words, something like that. Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a long bibliography. Um, which just goes to show that there's there's been a lot of good work that's been done in this area mm-hmm. um, and that's been one of that was another kind of interesting insight into this project because there's been a fair amount of scholarship on Tolkien's modern reading by Tolkien scholars, but they all seem to have been operating under the idea that it was an exception. Like, oh sure he read Buchan, but that's an exception. Oh sure he he read Charles Williams, but that was an exception. Oh here everything was this exception to the rule of like, well he read very little modern fiction, Humphrey Carpenter says so. Well let me just talk about this one little exception. And so therefore it was all very atomized and not the bigger picture. And what I you know, want to say after having done this project is forget the rule. There is no rule. He read modern fiction and he did take serious notice of it. So now we can finally start pulling the picture together and saying these are not little exceptions. This is part of a larger coherent picture where his modern reading is is a significant piece. You know, it's not as big a piece as his medieval reading. Um, the medieval literature is is more important but his modern reading is a significant piece and now we can actually call it that and not Mm -hmm. say oh well it must be just an exception no
2: (laughs) well he was very well read and like you said he was hyperbolic and he is also nuanced and so of course he's very widely read and of course he's going to make sweeping statements because that's who he is or was and He's very, very, you know, particular about things. So he might have read all of those things and then had a very, very strong opinions about them and never picked
0: them up again. You know, this was Tolkien we're talking about. Um, but that's- And he had such a, he's such a powerful memory and he remarks in several times about the strength of his memory that he could read something once and never pick it up again. And yet it, re- it remained in his memory as something that he had, had assimilated. And that was something I think that we've, we've kind of missed. He might've, he might've thought, oh, you know, I, I haven't looked at that in decades. And yet it still remained as part of that sort of mulch for his creative imagination.
2: Mm-hmm. What I love about your book is it gives a resource for those wanting to know about his modern reading, because even though it wasn't as big a piece as the other pieces, it's still there. It's still uh, influential, and it gives everyone a starting point of where to go from there. I mean, it is a foundation. You know, if someone wants to do more on Victorian literature and Tolkien, they have a chapter to start with. They have resources to look at, and they can branch off from there. And I I think that's just, it's fantastic. It's a part of Tolkien scholarship that was not widely covered. I mean, I've I've come across, you know, good many articles but nothing that was substantial and um, sweeping, you know, going over all of it. So that is something I think is going to be a great starting point for a lot of people uh, wanting to do modern Tolkien's modern reading and then also college students. I mean, I would have loved to have this resource in an English class in college. you know, write a paper on it, even if it wasn't that much that he did on modern reading, you know, on this particular kind of, um, you know, subject, here's something to start with and and to go from
0: there. So I think that's great. Thanks. I mean, it was a pleasure to pull together in, in, in part, like for that very reason to say, you know, this, this is a new thing. Um, I wrote this book because it needed to be written. Um, there was nothing else that was doing the job, um, and I'm I'm really hoping that it will invite people to build on that because this is not the last word. This is the first word in this particular line of thinking, um, and one of the things I I enjoyed too was pulling together lots of interview material that has not, to my knowledge, been frequently quoted or reprinted. Um, I, you know, I came across interviews in the Bodleian Library archives that were published in the 1960s, and as far as I know, never reprinted. And here we have Tolkien talking about his own work, talking about his influences, and they've just—they've not been engaged with because people didn't know about them. Um, and lots of different small interviews, pulling those together. Um, I'm hoping that people will start to branch out, you know, and go beyond the same three or four sources for his thoughts. Um, and start looking at the kind of the wider picture, and and seeing a really a more nuanced picture of Tolkien. Because that was another aspect that was so interesting about this project was, although you know, obviously fo- focusing on his reading, I learned so much about him as a person. You know, discovered, you know, he actually had a good many female friends, which you wouldn't know from Carpenter, because Carpenter is kind of puts him out to be a you know
2: misogynist. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> You know, and it's interesting because this is a little fiddly detail, but it's rather telling. Um, Carpenter mentions that um, Tolkien co-founded this um, literary social club called The Cave, and he lists some members of it, and they're all men, um, and that gets picked up by later Biographers and they mentioned the same couple of guys, and you assume, like, oh, yeah, okay, it's another all, all male club. Well, in fact, um, it was a co ed club that Tolkien founded, and there were a number of female faculty members from the English faculty who were on it, including several that he called old friends, close friends. Um, and there were quite a few of them who were part of this club called The Cave. Um, so a little bit of selective quoting on Carpenter's part has given a mistaken assumption, when in fact, one of the literary societies that he was involved with was both mixed men and women. So I really hope people will go back and start looking kind of things with a fresh eye and saying, well, let's let's look at what Tolkien was really doing. You know, what did he think about technology? You know, more nuanced than I thought. He had, well, there's there's a quite a bit of that in my chapter in science fiction, because he had... Quite a, a more nuanced, balanced view of technology than than you might think. Yeah,
2: and he was also far more egalitarian um, than people give him credit for. Uh, very traditional, but egalitarian. You know, he had he he was quite in favor of women's education and and so on and so forth. And that was that was kind of cutting edge back then. And so, um, I yeah, I think he has not gotten a good rap in terms of you know, his perspective on men and women. And of course, that's a whole
0: another rabbit trail, but is, but again, that was something fascinating because that same, there's a letter included in the letters that's often quoted where he talks about how it seems like his female students can't really go as far as his male students. And he's sort of puzzling over how this could be. And people seem to take that as evidence that, that he was a misogynist, but what really was going on is he's observing a fact there's was kind of a glass ceiling. And he was seeing his students weren't, his female students weren't going on quite as far as his male students as a general rule, what's going on. But Tolkien himself was doing everything he could to help them go on you know, with doing a lot of um, assistance and mentoring um, and, and teaching of students. I came across the interesting detail that when he was working for the Oxford English Dictionary um, early in his career, he helped two of his female students from Leeds to get jobs at the OED including one of them, he even gave her some special lexicography training to make sure that she was able to get the job. This is somebody who's who's supporting women in academia to a much higher level than, frankly, a lot of his colleagues.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: So in, in doing all
2: of this study and research, what was your favorite part of the study? What
0: was, like What chapter was your favorite and what was your most challenging? Oh, well... You know, I think probably one of my favorite chapters was the Fine Fabling, because that let me get into some of the authors that really I did not know about. I mean, who now has even heard of, much less read, the book called John Inglesant by J H. Shorthouse? You know no nobody. <laughs> um, and yet, this was a book that was important to Tolkien, um and I was able to even to track down the fact that Ingelsant um the Inglesant House, the house of the author John House was actually in the neighborhood where Tolkien lived as a boy. And he would walk past that house um, every day as he went to mass at the, uh, at the oratory. And I found out quite a lot of detail about that. And it enabled me to do an imaginative reconstruction of a morning in the young Tolkien's life as he, as he walks to mass. And that was, that was one of the most fun parts of a, of a very fun book because it, that imaginative reconstruction is based on a massive amount of, of detail and research that I was able to pull together to really conceptualize. This is this might have been what it was like for this one one day, and all sorts of details pulled from the from the historical context. Um, so that was really that was really fun. Um, and probably the thing that was most difficult was tracing out some of the reasons why. Tolkien has had this misconception of being stuck in the past because, you know, it was one thing to say, okay, well, Carpenter got us off to a false start, but then as I was working in the book, I realized that 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 still wasn't the whole story because, you know, even though Carpenter got us off on the wrong track, why did everybody stay on that track? What were the forces that have really reinforced this misconception? And that really I dug deeply into the history of his biographers, not just Carpenter, but his other biographers, and into his own personality. And and this is something I, I explore in the final chapter of the book. And I realized that partly there there are issues with the way that he talks about himself, about his his English habits of hyperbole and his English habits of understatement um, and self-deprecation. Um, that i had started to pick up on um, with all the time i spent in england because i i go to england usually twice a year and have done for more than a decade now um so i started to kind of get a feel for th- that context and that was a piece of the puzzle that that took a lot of thinking to kind of work out but when i when i did i felt like it clicked into place and helped me really understand how it has been that he's Been so stuck in this misconception.
1: Well, now we uh, talked earlier about this. This is not your first time on All About Jack. Uh, Let's go ahead as we're winding down. We'll do a final wrap up here in a moment. But um, since this is not your the first book you've written, uh, tell us about the others, and we'll have a link in the show notes so people can hear the complete interviews that you've uh, done with me on them.
0: Right. Well, I've written a memoir called "Not God's Type: An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms," and that is an account of my conversion from atheism to Christianity, and then my journey um, from being a Protestant into the Catholic Church, where I am now, very happily. Um, so that's my, that was my, my first book. Um, and then more recently, I've written a book called Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, an Integrated Approach to Defending Faith. And that draws on the teaching that I did um, while I was at uh, Houston Baptist University, um, teaching in the apologetics program there, really articulating a way in which, if we're going to be presenting the Christian faith, we need to do it that uses both the imagination and the reason um, in a well in an integrated way. Um, and so, it's really kind of making the case for the importance of of the imagination. So, those are my my published books, my single author books. Um, but as I'm sure you're aware, um, William, I've also done lots of chapters in books, and uh, one of the ones that I'm particularly proud of is the, is the chapter I contributed to C.S. Lewis at Poet's Corner, um, hmm. so, uh, edited by uh, Michael Ward and Peter Williams. So that's a, that's a chapter that I'm very very pleased about myself, and uh, various other chapters on, on Lewis as well as on, on Tolkien over the years. And returning
2: to Tolkien's modern reading, why don't you give us a recap of the book and tell
0: us where we can find it online? Well, um, it's the so it's the look at what Tolkien had read of modern literature and how it shaped him and how it shaped not just individual works in his Middle Earth legendarium, but also how it shaped his creative imagination as a whole and what we can learn about Tolkien, that bigger picture um, from having a a sense of what he had read um, of modern literature and how he had engaged with with modern culture. Um, And you can find a copy most easily by going to uh, the publisher, wordonfire.org slash Tolkien will take you to the page um, that has links for buying the book. And it also has a whole set of videos that I made um, at different Tolkien locations in England, um, which give sort of previews of, of what I talk about in the book, but also give glimpses of Tolkien locations, his house, the oratory, you know, his grave, um, you know, all sorts of different places in Oxford. So uh, so that's wordonfire.org slash Tolkien.
1: Uh, excellent. And of course, we'll have link in the show notes uh, for that. Uh, so people can uh, check that out. I know I looked at a, a couple and they were quite fascinating. And so I know uh, people who enjoy Tolkien will especially want to check out those videos that you uh, have released. Well, ladies, it's been uh, really good to uh, chat with the two of you and for uh, an opportunity for listeners to learn about uh, Holly's book, uh, Tolkien's Modern Reading. Let me uh, thank you, Holly, first of all, for uh, being a return guest on All About Jack.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be on anytime. You know, twist my arm to talk about Lewis and Tolkien, you know, anytime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. And then, uh, Lisa, thank you for joining me and uh, co-hosting today.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been great.
1: Thanks also goes to you, our listener, for your interest in this episode of All About Jack, a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com. Again, I'm William O'Flaherty, your host and the creator of this podcast. Be sure to visit EssentialCSLewis.com for a variety of content, including a lot of material about quotations credited to Lewis that he might not have written. I also have a YouTube channel entitled 90 Seconds to Knowing C.S. Lewis. There's a link to it in the show notes. Today, you heard a conversation with Dr. Holly Ordway about her new book for 2021 entitled Tolkien's Modern Reading. You'll find links in the show notes to be able to buy the book and also watch the videos that Holly mentioned. There's also a link to the other book interviews and also a link to find when she has been a guest on a couple of my essay chat shows. You'll also be able to find out more about my co-host, Lisa Kutris, in the show notes. Speaking of those notes, you can find them at EssentialCSLewis.com and look for this show. But it might be just as easy to find them where the podcast is hosted, which is allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. You can also listen to All About Jack via iTunes, see the show notes for a direct link to it there, and consider rating my show on iTunes to help others find it. And of course, please consider sharing this show so others can hear it. Before closing out, in case you didn't know, I've written two books related to C.S. Lewis. Buying them is a great way to indirectly support this podcast so it can continue to be made freely available. In 2018, The Misquotable C.S. Lewis was published. It explores 75 quotations credited to Lewis. Most are not by him. Some are paraphrases, and a few are ones that could be misunderstood without more context. Then in 2016, my first book was released. It's an enhanced study guide to the Screw Tape Letters, humorously called C.S. Lewis Goes to Hell. Learn more about it and get a free PDF sample by visiting screwtapecompanion.com. Finally, thank you again for listening to All About Jack, a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com. I'm William O'Flaherty.